I want to tell you guys all about Cave Day, which I've been absolutely loving the last few months. I joined Cave Day after reading Atomic Habits by James Clear. You might have even heard me mention Cave Day during the Atomic Habits five-part miniseries. Cave Day are group-focused sessions led on Zoom that focus on monotasks. So have you ever had a task where you constantly feel just distracted by Instagram, your phone, text messages, TikTok? It takes you forever to do something super simple. Cave Day asks you to put your phone somewhere where we can't see it and focus on the one task ahead of you for the period of time you're in the cave. I take it one step further and use one of their weekly planning workshops to decide on my goals for the week breaking them down into monotasks, and planning out my week of caves so I can get it all done. I've never been so productive. You can do one, you can sign up for one, two, or three hour long sprints, depending on the task in front of you. And it doesn't even have to be work. Let it be that yoga session you keep pushing off, or meditating, or making a fun lunch, but have other people there to be accountable. I work from home and sometimes, especially with this podcast, it often feels like I'm doing everything on my own. So logging into these focus sessions, seeing other people work, using cave day strategies and techniques and routines that help me stay on top of it. I feel like it's just a no brainer. Join me today. Try the first month for only a dollar or your first three months for only $40. I get so much work done in the cave without feeling burned out. The link is in my show notes for the discount. Happy Mentor Monday. Welcome to another episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast, your guide to pursuing a career in the entertainment industry. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller, a New York City-based actress with credits in TV, film, off-Broadway commercials, and so forth. And I bring you some of the most incredible mentors in the entertainment industry, from award-winning directors to showrunners to network executives to Emmy-winning producers, casting directors, actors, and so forth. So you have the roadmap to getting to where you want to go. If you haven't yet, please review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic and send me a message. Say hello. Let me know what you think. And if you want to know more information about each guest, sign up for our mailing list. It's like one email a week, if at all, and the link is in the show notes and in my bio on social media. Our mentor today is Izzy Stevens. Izzy is an acclaimed Aussie American actress widely regarded for her lead role in Netflix's Occupation franchise, among other lead roles in films and shows such as Rainfall, Underbelly, Puberty Blues, and Another Mother. On top of her successful acting career, Izzy has created a name for herself as a powerhouse filmmaker and producer. Izzy's award-winning films have been screened on ABC, as well as Con Diversity, Holly Shorts, Cinema Australia, Tropfest, and more. Recently, Izzy has stepped into the podcasting world with her podcast, Indie Spunk, highlighting emerging industry creatives, giving them a platform to share their knowledge, advice, and experience. On this episode, we get into her acting career, both in Australia, moving to LA, her work as a filmmaker, 
and tips that she has for navigating the film industry, specifically the film festival circuit, tips for that, tips for pre-production on a project. Um, she coaches actors and filmmakers who want to create their own films all the time. So we're really lucky to get a glimpse as to what that's like and any advice that she has from her experience working with other talented filmmakers and her own work herself. So without further ado, here's Izzy Stevens. Hi, Izzy. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. Michelle, I'm so stoked to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. There's so much to talk about. I feel like you're a multi-hyphenate and you've done so much. So we're just, we're going to get right into it. I, I it. always start off with, what was your first role in the entertainment industry? My very first role in the entertainment industry was at 17 years old. I was in uh, performing arts high school, I actually had gone to the performing arts high school for ballet, for dance. And then very quickly, I was a dancer for forever as a child. And when it came time to go to high school, I really um, did not want to go to the option that we had available, which was the Catholic school right across the road from my primary school. A dance teacher had pulled me aside and, um, and said, oh, look, you're, you know, you're really good at this. If you want to take this seriously, I recommend going and trying to get a scholarship at this performing arts school. And so I begged, please, please, like, let me just audition. Let me see if I can do this. We couldn't afford it. It was very expensive, but I got a scholarship for ballet. But a couple of years into the school, I realized I don't have the discipline or the uh, temperament of a ballerina at all. I was very like, I like to push the boundaries. I was a little bit rebellious. I really like to hang out with the acting kids and the theater, theater kids. And so I very gradually evolved over to the, the drama stream and I guess cut to 16. I was in a play at school and an agent was in the audience. It's a little bit, I know, it's like one of those stories that I still think like, is did that actually happen? <laughs> but an agent was in the audience. She asked if she could represent me. And about a month later, I booked a series regular role on a network television show. So- I mean, and you know how crazy that is yes. because I know you're in LA right now. So you've heard all the stories of how people have started in acting. That is not a typical story, an incredible Absolutely. story, which yeah, is not typical. Totally not typical. And honestly, I did not know. So at the time I thought, oh, this is okay. Braddy, 17 year old. What's everyone talking about? I get this it. is so easy. I met, I've, okay, I'm saying this in air quotes for no, for if you're not watching the video, I'm saying this in air quotes. I've made it thinking I didn't, I didn't have to do anything else. I didn't have to audition anymore. I didn't have to worry. Mm. I basically am on television for an extended amount of time and that's it. And rude shock. Of course, that's not the case. And I think that the past 10 years have really taught me how much work goes into maintaining and building this kind of career. But that early start really, I mean, it was like a drug. It was like a drug straight into my veins. I immediately was like- You probably thought like, you were amazing. Like you probably were like, I, you know what? The reason why I did so well right away is because I'm just- <laughs> I'm just so talented, not that you're not, but no. just like, I can imagine at 17, I mean, I've, I had the same thoughts when I was in my early 20s. I was like, I'm going to be different because everyone tells you how hard it is. You I just actually felt like, oh my God, they've made a huge mistake. What the hell is <sighs> happening? Quite, I got, I basically went from boisterous, outgoing kid that could do anything and whatever. And I like to push the boundaries and like sneak out at night and hang out with my friends to quiet, conservative, mm -hmm. don't ruffle feathers, people pleaser, just say yes, just like 
don't don't give anyone an idea of questioning why you're here. Mm. And I really went inward. And I think that this happens for a lot of people in the industry. They're like, I really want to book all this stuff. I really want to do this stuff. And then something starts to happen and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, yeah, I don't feel and it. So, all of that imposter syndrome, which I did not have language for at the time, but I definitely right. went completely the opposite way. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing here? <laughs> But that's so good that you experienced that at such a young age, because I feel like, and we'll talk about your career as it, as it unfolded, you know, obviously very soon, but there's this element of, of maybe that imposter syndrome and being able to push through that at some point. And then it probably, I imagine, if feeling like a little more relaxed on set yes. and, and knowing that that hurdle, like once you get over that hurdle and that stress and that nervousness, right? Mm-hmm. That at some point it'll be okay. That probably what led you to push past that and all these other projects and endeavors that you did later on in your career. Do you think yeah, that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Also, to put it in context, the show that I was on was very adult content. It's called mm-hmm. Underbelly. It was a very popular television show in Australia. I think they still do seasons, um, it, it, like spin-off things back in Australia, but very adult. My season was all about the underbelly of Sydney in the 1940s. So, it was a period piece. Oh, right. It was all adults. And so, I was the youngest person on that set. And so, I was surrounded by these like veteran people that I knew from television. And so, that kind of added to it. But also, what happened was that I feel like I got really used to being an actor in a scene on set in around a p- professional crew. And so, yeah. when that show ended and I was, you know, oh, getting offers to be in student films, which I didn't know the difference at the time. I just thought a film offer is a film offer. And then being on those sets being like, oh, this isn't the same. (laughs) And I'm like ready to show up and do the work and I'm ready to show up and have it run like it's supposed to run, how I know it's supposed to run. And it's completely different, which is when I started to understand the different sort of aspects of the industry and how everyone's trying to get where I was. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I just, it, it was a funny yeah. journey and I don't think it was a traditional journey at all. Not at all. But I, I think that's so interesting, Izzy, you telling me that because, you know, most actors I know, including myself, I mean, I grant, granted, I had a couple of professional gigs when I was younger here and there pop mm. out, but for the most part, it was just student stuff, right? Just like plays, school plays and like theater camps, that sort of thing. And then, you know, at some point I graduated, I did some student films and I remember like, you know, for a while you do student films and you know that like... You just go through it and you're like, okay, this is not the most professional thing. There's a lot of waiting around. There's a lot of them figuring out what the next thing is, but you're on set and it's cool and like you're learning. But at some point, and I don't remember when it happened for me, you grow out of it. You're like, I cannot do another student film. Like, unless I know that it's going to be done well, I just at one point was like, I cannot do it because I, I, I just felt like I had graduated from that. But you had done it the opposite. You, you know, I, after student films, you start getting on professional sets and you start going, okay, I see the difference right away. And oh my God, this is run like a well-oiled machine. And you had the opposite experience, which is that you had the well-oiled machine and then you're like, wait, what are these (laughs) projects? Like, they do not know what they're doing. They're figuring it out as they go along. And bless student films. There's a reason why they're out there. We all love them. We appreciate them. But I can imagine that feeling of going like, whoa, like, (laughs) this is this is not done the way I thought that, you know, projects are done. Oh, yeah. I did not last long. I think I did one 
And it was, I think it came through a friend who was like, oh, could you do this? Maybe I did two, actually. One who was, it was written by a girlfriend of mine I went to primary school with, who I trust. And actually, she did a great job at that. But it was another one that I was on that I thought, this is it. I'm not going to do any more of these. Because I would just get, this makes sense in the big picture because I went into directing and I started directing my own work. But on set, if you're a natural leader and an actor and the set isn't running very well, you want to vocalize. Like you want to be like, okay, guys, I know how to fix this. Like let's get together and, you know, la, la, la. And at the time I did not understand what that skill was or how to use it or even that I was able to because I was an actor in that role. So just feeling very frustrated and being like, whoa, why are you guys fighting? Like, let's let's make the film and it's not too complicated. And um, Have you ever had anyone kind of put you in your place, essentially? I once was on a – it wasn't a student film. It was like a low-budget film in Pennsylvania. I'm in New York. And I remember I went out there. I was like, oh, this will be great. And it wasn't that it wasn't unprofessional, but I do remember we were shooting at 2 a.m. or something and we're all tired. We'd been shooting all day and, and now through the night. And I remember I have this memory of something being handled incorrectly. And I remember feeling like, oh, this is not good. And I had a solution to make it better. And the director, you know, nice the entire time aside from this moment. And maybe it was because it was 2 a.m. But he like kind of put me in my place and was just like, you're the actor. I'm the director and writer. Like, I I got this. I don't need your suggestions. You (laughs) could just do what you need to do. And I was like... Okay. Oh. Yeah. 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 I got a job. I'll pay to do that job. Let me just do that one job. But like, if you're someone like you, is he like someone like like a like just a leader and 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 has the mind to do all that stuff? I can imagine. Have you ever had anyone put you in your place at all? Or no, that's never happened on a set. I think because on a professional set, I'm more likely to be quiet, especially back then. But no one's ever put me. That's such a good question. No one's ever vocally said, you need to back off and and do your job. But I've definitely probably gone too far. I wonder, I mean, we're going to fast forward for a second to to your projects that you are the creative lead and that you are like leading the show. Those actors, do you ever feel like, hey, guys, don't I I know exactly what I'm doing? No need to like, give any sort of feedback or I mean, because it's partially collaborative and partially, hey, it's the director's vision. So funny that you ask that question, because I think a lot of the early years and sort of in response to your other question as well, in those early years, I want I saw actors on set that were very able to collaborate with the director. And I saw that relationship as such a sacred collaborative space that I deeply wanted to be a part of because I felt this like natural ideas generation, this natural creative urge in me to kind of be involved in the conversation. But I didn't know, I didn't have the skills to do that. I didn't have the communication skills. And so, which is actually, funnily enough, the reason I went through film school was because I wanted to get better at understanding what all of the roles were and and why, you know, how, how it all functioned. And sidebar, what ended up happening was that I was like, oh, I'm a director. This makes total sense now. But I saw actors being able to collaborate. I wanted to know how to do that. And I actually used all of that training to be able to show up to set and be ready for when the director says, what do you think? And when I I booked a film, which um, I guess I'm getting into a bit of a nitty gritty story here, but I think that it's relevant. I hadn't booked anything in about three years. And I had gone through film school. I was really in love with directing. And I said to my theatrical agent, I think it's time to hang up the old <laughs> act 
acting hat and and say goodbye. And it's just, you know, it feels like a loveless marriage and I'm giving all of my love and passion into it and it hurts and I don't want to do it anymore. And she went, wait, wait, one more. Let's do one more. Just do one more audition. Just try one more time. I know this is another story that we get told that's like, oh, yeah, sure. But I basically was like, no, I'm out. And she said, I know, like, read the script, do this tape. The director knows who you are. Just do it. Put the tape down. Two days later, I got the call, booked the feature film. It was going to be on Netflix. Big deal. Like, flying me, you know, to another area. And so, because I went through that, I'm I'm leaving, I'm done, I'm out – and then I booked something. I went, fuck it. I'm just going to go to my limits with how I want to be on set and really say, fuck it. Let's just try. Let's see what happens when you show up fully and you articulate yourself. And really kind of trying to patch up all of those like wounds that 17-year-old Izzy was dealing with. And it's funny, when the film was still being developed, as we were about to go into pre-production, as we were about to go in rehearsals, I haven't hadn't even met the director in person yet. It was our very first phone call. He called me after I'd booked the role just to talk about the character. And I had pages of notes and he was like, I'd love to hear your ideas. I was like, funny you mention. <laughs> so I think that, which is why I'm such a big advocate for absolutely knowing your role, right? And knowing, you know, your position on set. And this is a bit of a dance. It is a bit of a tango, but being able to show up with your ideas and collaborate is actually a beautiful strength. So I feel like you should totally not have gotten chewed out. I think there was a nicer way anyway for them to communicate with me that like I'm overstepping. But I think what I learned, and I think it's very sort of aligned with what you just said, is it's important to learn how to collaborate well, but it's also important to know when to, as much as you can, when, when you shouldn't really overstep and when you're giving a, a suggestion and when you're trying to work with someone and collaborate yes. in, in the context of your role. So I, I agree with you. I think it might have been because it, it was 2 a.m. and yeah, blah, everyone's blah, mad. <laughs> exactly. But I do think that in retrospect, it's not that I wouldn't have said anything. It's that I, I might have gone about it differently mm. and and if if someone chews me out for it that also might be their problem yes but uh, since then i remember for a long time after i didn't want to collaborate yeah. or i didn't want to like give too much of my opinion because i was like you know it's not my thing it's not my set it's not my call yeah but some people would love that so who knows absolutely on the right then, set yeah and also i think that it it's probably important to say you know if you're listening and you're like what does that mean for a role that you might have booked? And I'm talking to you, listener. Hello. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it does depend on your role on the project because a lead, someone who's like in one of those lead or, you know, lead supporting roles, they're going to have a little bit more of a say on what's going on with their character and what's going on on the page. But if you're coming in on the right. day and you want to bring all these ideas and change the t- text, it's that's just not as welcome. So knowing right. like the makeup of the cast and, and your role in that is really important as well. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I think it's it's something to be aware of and to learn from, mm-hmm. you know, just what kind of set is it? Is it a one that embraces improvisation? Is it Aaron Sorkin level? And they're yeah. just like, not one word out of place, right? Yes. So those are things we pick up on along the way. Totally. But to go back to Underbelly, and then there were a couple other shows that you also did in Australia that I also wanted to mention. What are some differences between shooting these Australian shows and shooting things in America? Professionally speaking, I feel like they're very, very similar. I mean, there are more regulations, I think, in um, America, but we have very similar kind of union rules. So on a professional set, it's not going to feel too different. It's a very, very similar dynamic. Sometimes there are just more people on uh, an American set, but it really depends on the size of the production. 
Also, because some of the productions I've been on shooting in Australia have been American. So I feel like there is, you know what I mean? Like I can't really, dif- I, I'm not sure if I could differentiate. Amazing. I appreciate that. Yeah. So so you're doing this for a while. You also did Puberty Blues, which, which was a good run. So how was that show? Puberty Blues was so incredible to be a part of that show still if it follows me more than anything i think because it really? it really stood the test of time it's something that's still really popular and i think they just re-released it on a streamer and the fans of that show are enduring like they really love the show mm-hmm. and i think that it was very very cool to be a part of but personally speaking I was going through a really tough time, uh, you know, on a, on a personal level. And so I think that we were there over two seasons and everyone evolved through it. And I learned so much being on that set. And I also was so grateful to get to work with the two directors on that show, Emma Freeman and Glendon Ivan, who have gone on to make incredible stuff in their own right. And they're just killing it. And working with them taught me more than any other set I've been on, how to collab, like how I wanted to collaborate with a director, what my dream directors really were. And I think I had, again, like, especially watching Glendon and Emma as well, watching them direct made me want to go through film school, which is what I ended up doing, I think, a a year or two years after that. And so after film school, is that when you went to LA or was it a little bit of time before? I had gone to um, LA for a pilot season. So on the back end of underbelly right before i booked puberty blues i signed with a u.s management company and they went we're really excited about you come to la um so i came out for pilot season i had a really great pilot season it i felt like it was one of the last kind of traditional pilot seasons yeah Yeah. um because when i returned for another pilot season two years later it was a completely different environment and my experience was like 180 degrees different it was very different so i started to realize oh there's something going on in the industry things are changing they're not doing things the way that they were doing before it was really quiet but also there was a huge there was also going through this huge push for diversity which was awesome and of course everyone was sort of going okay like how does how is this going to work? What are we doing here? Um, the roles were looking different. So there was obviously something really interesting going on in the industry at that point. So I actually didn't move out to LA officially until 2018 when I had, I was sort of off the back end of a film that was premiering and a film that I had made as well. Which film was premiering? Which one was it? The film that Just- was premiering was Occupation. Uh, oh, the first, okay. The first Occupation, which Got is it. found on Netflix. And then yes. I was also, I had also directed um, a film that was sort of doing well in festivals, doing the rounds. And so I sort of went, let's just let's just go off the back of that, uh, be here for the US premiere and sort of just put yeah, down roots. Make, make the most of it. I also knew Oops. at that time that if I didn't move then, I probably wouldn't. It was like now, I just felt like it's now or never, you got to yeah. go. <laughs> you also probably just had the instinct that, that that was the right time, yeah, I think. exactly. But let's go back then to occupation. I wanted to ask you about booking that and then just obviously Netflix. That was great. Premiere, US premiere. Tell me a little bit about booking the project. That was the booking that I made when I was like, I'm done. Wow. <laughs> Excellent. So that was that story. And that was the call that I had with, um, with Luke Spark, the director, who basically called me and said, hey, you know, we're so excited to have you as Bella Bartlett and do you have any ideas? Because, you know, the conversation was, I've never been a seven, you know, your character is like a 17-year-old girl with daddy issues and I've never been a 17-year-old girl with daddy issues. So let's look at the script together and see, you know, uh, what we, how we can make this, um, 
really Amazing. authentic and, and true. And his his forte was really the the action and the story and and the you know the sci-fi elements. He's really good at that. Um, but he wanted to, which is part of his intention with casting. He was like, I really want to bring actors on that can bring some authenticity, and he wants the human aspect of that, which is what we do as actors, right? So he we got on that phone call and we basically went through the whole script and. Um, yeah, it was it was booked off of a self tape actually. Funnily enough, and this isn't this story. I don't know if I don't know if this makes me feel good or or not good. But in the final week of shooting that film, we had got you know I'd gone through weeks of um, rehearsals and we had been on set for a while. And so the 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 whole production, the crew, and everyone it felt very close. We felt like family. And one of the producers was standing next to me on one of the final scenes. And she turned to me and she said, Izzy, we're so, so glad we had you. And, you know, thank you for being a part of this. And I went, oh my gosh, thank you. I mean, this is a dream and I've loved this. It's been, you know, it's been a bit of a renaissance for me and in, in, as an actor and reminded me of what I love about it. And she said, yeah, yeah, no, we were excited about your, um, about you coming on board. And I said, so, so Luke liked the tape. I don't know what compelled me to ask. And she said, what tape? And I said, the tape <laughs> the, well, my, audition. Audition my audition that I put tape. together and sent in <laughs> and she said oh no we didn't watch that we just saw you know Luke saw you on wow. Underbelly and wrote your name down five years ago and when he your name came across his desk he just said yeah let's go with Izzy and what is wild about this and why I bring this up is we think as actors and performers and creatives that any previous work immediately becomes irrelevant and that we need to jump on situations fast and hard. Otherwise, we lose the opportunity. And the truth is that people are paying attention. What you put out there just needs to be a really good quality and you need to just keep going. Because I had thought no one cares about me. My heyday was over. I had booked all of this amazing, these amazing TV shows for years. And now it's been oh, like, no one knows who I am. It's been three years. I haven't booked anything. I'm getting no's. My, my US rep had just dropped me. Like it was it was like doors slamming in my face, left, right, and center. So to hear this, you know, maybe that could have really pissed me off and been like, oh my God, I did the tape. And like, what do you mean? But ultimately I felt like this is a really important lesson for everybody, for all of us to remember that our work really matters and it stays, it has staying power. Even if you feel like you're, you know, maybe you were relevant once and you're not relevant, you're always relevant. So just remember that. Just remember that everything that you do, just keep putting work out and keep trusting that because people are paying attention. That's amazing. Oh, I love that story, Izzy. I love the fact that, you know, also just the idea that you almost didn't audition for this thing because you were done, which let's go back to that for a second. I, you know, I've I've definitely heard this, something like this before with other actors. I think Aubrey Plaza Mm -hmm. had the same story where she was like, I was about to quit. I literally wrote an email or, and then she auditioned for two things. Like the last two things she had auditioned for, she booked both. And it was like Parks and Recreation mm-hmm. and like a movie that she booked in the same week. And she was like, I was this close to officially just 100% quitting, not even thinking twice about it. And I think a lot of actors also hope that they can, I don't want to say inauthentically like inhabit that feeling, but like I know myself, I'm like, oh, you know, if I, only I was just right at the precipice of quitting and I really <laughs> meant it, I'm sure that's when something will come in because I do think there's an energy to that. At that point, I mean, it's all about sometimes just random occurrences because the fact that you thought it had to do with your audition when really it was the fact that they'd already kind of wanted you for this. 
So beautiful. So funny. And it reminds us that we just have no control. But also, I love what you're saying about... I I feel that way too sometimes. I'm like, I wish I just had that fucking energy right now. Like, I didn't care and I was quitting. But like, I care and I I I care and I want want this to like, I want to feel good about this. And and I want to keep doing this. I want to just, I want to invest my energy. Mm. I want to, you know, want to do a good job and to be authentic about who I'm representing as a character. And fucking energy is sexy sometimes, but it's not sustainable. Well, also, there has to just be, like, a fine balance between fuck it, I don't care about the result of my work, but I still care about – like, I, I remember I was I was a reader for various casting offices, and mm. one casting director – I can't remember which one, but I think it was Jenny Rabbits. She was just like – what did she say? She said something like, the best actors, the actors that book all the time are the ones that obviously care about the work. They came in, they know all the lines, they – have made choices, but it's very much like this is my work and I don't need to do all yes. the others. I don't need to smile at the casting director. I don't need to. She's like, it's as simple as like, they don't look back up at me after their role to see, mm. oh, did she think I did well? They're just presenting their work and then they're leaving. Mm. And some of them don't even say goodbye. They'll just be like, okay, all right, great. And then leave. And she'll be like, kind of rude, but that was awesome. So (laughs) I don't care. So there's just this element of like, I think there is this fine line. I'm still walking that line. I'm still trying to figure that one out. But there's a fine line between fuck it. I don't care if I book this. I just want to do the work Mm -hmm. that I know I can do and I love. It's still very hard to do because we all want to just book that role, especially if it's a high stakes thing. Yeah. But but I hear and I, I love that story and how it just kind of supports this idea that, you know, fuck it. Fuck it. If we don't get it, we don't get it. But sometimes we do. And sometimes it's just a matter of the fact that we put our foot out there. We tried. We yeah. took that step. Absolutely. And that the universe, I don't know, I do believe the universe has I our I believe back. in the universe yeah, too. I do. Yeah. I do. I think that it was we can try as much as we can to like white knuckle that steering wheel and control everything. But the truth is that we just have to be busy, which is why, you know, I'm such a big advocate for making your own work. Like we just have, yes. I know you are as well. And I love what yeah. you, what you vouch for, what you talk about on your Thanks. podcast. I think you just, you're doing so much great work in terms of helping people get their work okay. made. And I think that energy is just as sexy as that fucking energy. It's like you hone your voice, you know what you're doing, you know, like what stories that you want to tell and what's important to you to talk about. And I think that is that is the magic, that special source there. Thanks, Izzy. Yeah. I appreciate all that <laughs> and all that feedback. I really do. Um, and I actually, it leads right into it because actually, before we talk about creating your own work, because I, I just love all that you do and I'm such a proponent of creating your own work and whatever format, but tell me a little bit about the move to LA. What was it like? How was it just going, okay, this is what this industry is like? Because it's different, I imagine. So tell me a little bit about it, Izzy. So it was very, it almost had felt like I had hit the reset button. And being real, like America doesn't care about, I should say Hollywood doesn't care about any credits that you have anywhere else. They do not care. Even with the, you know, the film that was coming out that was Australian, but it was going to be on Netflix internationally and it was premiering out here, was like, yeah, okay, but so what? And so it's this real constant process of, you know, reminding people, no, I've worked on professional sets. I've been like an actor in this industry for over 10 years. It's like, I know what I'm doing. Please like 
let me be in that room. And I think that it was a very, it was like, I've got to go through the paces and be my own advocate as much as I can for the fact that I, you know, belong here. And I will say that if I had moved way back when I first came out for pilot season and I had stuck it out, I probably would have been in a very different position because the industry was in a very different place. But coming Mm. out when I did come out, everything was in flux, streamers, people didn't really know, you know, who was buying, what was going to happen, you know, are we we losing money? Are we making money? It was this, you know, and had representation coming over, I actually ended up parting ways with them when I felt like, you know, this relationship isn't the one that I wanted. And that actually happened a couple of times. So the first year- was a little bit bumpy. Um, and then, but you just got to keep going. And I think that I obviously had built a little bit of a base before, you know, with a couple of times I had yeah. re- come out here and I had some friends out here and I just went to work meeting people and auditioning as much as I could and being pretty ballsy about my decisions with like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not really responsive to this rep. I don't think that this is a good fit. So I'm going to go over here. And, but I, I mean, I had some pretty wild, I don't know, wild experiences and, I think that it was very humbling and very important for me to go through that. And in many cases, I'm still going through that because we built up all of this momentum. And actually the day that, um, the day that we found out COVID hit, I found out that I booked a film and it was like, Sorry. finally, no, I mean like everyone has this story, right? There's no, some way. But it's, uh, there's a couple that really hit home, yeah. you know, and it's, uh, I'm so sorry. And it's so, so, I mean, for, yeah. for people who are not actors, it is so difficult to book a role. It is nothing to do sometimes with talent. It's a lot to do with luck. It's a lot to do with right place, right time. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that you booked something and it's like such a win, I such know. a high. And then that happens. I know. Oh, so man. crazy. And I think that it's, yeah. I mean, it, it it's all meant, it all happens the way that it was supposed to happen. The yeah. film didn't go ahead. And I think that it was, we all like momentum stopped for everybody. Everybody. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, but it was, sure. you know, I, I just look back and think, I'm so grateful for everything that happened the way that it happened. And still, I still believe that. So good. And well, and so let's, let's, we're now at this pandemic. I, that's when I started my podcast. I was like, Hey, I have all this time and I want to be creative. What are, yes. what's something I've always wanted to do? And I haven't tried I did this podcast. You created a film. So can you talk a little bit about that? The genesis of that? Yes, absolutely. I, I started film, I started making films much earlier. Right. So back in Australia, yeah. after going through film school, I was making projects with uh, friends of mine. And my very first project out of film school did really well, um, which got me some great press and got me some offers as a director out in Australia. So I was working as a director a little bit out there. Um, but coming over, I, you know, I go through what I coach filmmakers and, you know, help them go through the process of making their film. And I think that just like you in COVID, that's when because I slowed down enough to sort of regroup and figure out like, what do I actually want to do? What do I want to build long-term? That's the business that kind of came out of COVID. And as I was building this business, I was, I basically turned to a friend, a girlfriend of mine and said, she said, Oh, you know, I've never made anything before, but I've got this. Well, I've kind of written 12 pages of freehand notes about a project that I want to make, but I've never done this before. Could you help me? I said, funny you mention I'm wanting to put, you know, build this business. And do you want to be my like sort of guinea pig? And I'll take you through this process. So I took her through the, you know, the process of what has now become my breakthrough program, but taking her through the process of making her film, I realized that a lot of the skills I was teaching her, I also wanted to return to because I wanted to make my own film 
I'm needing to teach people how to build their network, how to build a community, how to build crew and like know how to talk to people that you've never met before and ask them to be a part of your project. So I went, okay, great. Well, I really want to shoot something myself and basically do that as a case study as well, because I didn't have filmmaker friends out in LA yet. I didn't have um, a lot of people that I knew out here that were, you know, directors, producers, cinematographers, you know, sound engineers, any yeah. of that. So I went, great, this is a really awesome opportunity for me to practice what, I pre- what I'm what i preaching and, you know, not only take her through that, but take myself through this process. So that's exactly when I made Seafoam. We made it in um, the thick of COVID. It was December 2020. So we were kind of dancing between, are we going to, is everything going to be locked down again? Right. They were sort of going through like, we're locked down. No, we're not. We're allowed out. No, we're locked down again. And so we weren't sure if it was actually going to work and happen, but I just kept saying, let's just go forward as if it'll work. And it did. And um, from that also came, you know, wonderful, wonderful things for that film as well that, you know, it's circulating festivals now. It's doing well. So it's exciting. Yeah. It's a psychological thriller film, which I mostly direct psychological thrillers. I really love the medium. They're usually female focused. I think there's something really interesting about what goes on inside of a woman's head. Yes. <laughs> I love that. And uh, for people who want to hear more about this, it's um, you're, you talk about the evolution of this and how and why to start before you're ready in the film industry, which is an episode on your podcast, yes. which I found very interesting. And I think I think people should listen to it just like take the play by bit play because like the title says you do recommend people to start even if they're not ready even if they think that they don't have all their ducks in a row and part of your story for this is that and you kind of mentioned it before is that you just started finding the people yeah you know you found someone on instagram that you followed that was a cinematographer you spoke with someone else who was able to do this sound and you just kind of formed this group of people So I do recommend people listening to that episode. But in general, can you tell us then about navigating the film festival circuit with Seafoam or with your other films as well? How did you, what are your recommendations on that? And how do you navigate the film festival circuit? Okay, I have so many things to say on film festivals. I um, have like a whole kind of branch of my course breakthrough that's all about film festivals. And so there's so much to say about it. So Forgive me if I like <laughs> spew out all of this information and it doesn't make any sense. Hopefully this makes sense to you. But so far, so good. <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, so, first sentence, ace. So in the beginning, so I think that it's really important to consider festivals in pre-production and development. And that really starts with how you're pitching the project. I'm a big advocate for crowdfunding, not just because it's a way to get you funding, but it's actually a really smart marketing tool to talk about your project, talk about you as the way that you want to be seen in the industry. And it's also a great foundational space to get your pitch together so that when it comes time for you on that back end, you know exactly how to talk about your project already. You've done that legwork and you've also sort of market tested to see who's donating to the film, who's responding well, what does this look like? And understanding because part of that like pre-work is understanding where your film falls in terms of a niche. So, or niches, usually there are multiple. So let's take Seafoam, for instance, it's a psychological thriller. You could also put that in a horror category. You could put that in, it's female focused. It's, you know, very diverse crew. We have people from like seven different nationalities in our crew. Um, A lot of them women, non-binary folks. So we have these kinds of niches that fall into categories in terms of festivals. When you're looking at your festivals and figuring out where to go and where to take it, I think it's really important to recognize that you want to be 
aware of sort of three different tiers of festivals. You first want to look at the niche bucket, like where do your where does your film fall into in terms of its themes and, you know, those kinds of things that pop out about it. But also you want to diversify your festival outreach. So you want to think about uh, community festivals. So if you're in a small community, a lot of people I hear say, um, oh, I'm in such a small community. No one's out here. No one, you know, there's nothing going on here. But usually those are the situations that are very, very helpful to get you traction because community festivals want to champion your project. So look around at what is immediately in your vicinity. If you're in a small town or a smaller market, there is something available that's going to champion you. Uh, Okay. So the second category that you want to think about are industry festivals. And that really is looking at um, where do you want to get seen? That's not going to be the community in terms of, you know, public coming to your festival that are in that area. So for instance, I don't want to confuse this. It, the industry festivals would be something that you're likely to get seen at in terms of um, like seen by industry. People from the mm. industry will attend. You're, we're talking about those sort of higher level festivals, your Sundance, your Khan, your okay. um, your sort of Tribeca, like those, those bigger festivals. Some of them fall into both. I would say that um, I went to Holly – like my film went to Holly Shorts last year and I would say that that is – that is sort of a, you know, falls into both categories. Right. And then you've kind of got that third with that third tier, which is your, um, your niche festival. So like what, you know, where okay. we want to do outreach Like women focused podcast, uh, podcast, women focused festivals. Exactly. Things exactly. like that. In this case. Yeah, exactly. So we want you to be seen by all of those. A lot of, a lot of, I think that people get disheartened if they don't get into one of the major festivals, but so much, so many sales agents, so distributors, hard. people in the industry, they, they look and other festival programmers come to those festivals too and look for right. content and they're always sharing information. So CFM got shared with a ton of people that I didn't apply to because someone was in the audience, referred me to someone else and someone else and someone else. And that happens a lot. So I think the last tip I'll give for film yeah. festivals is to always ask for a waiver. Just uh, email them. No, just ask. Ask for a waiver. Saves you a ton Amazing. of money. Yeah. Oh my God, love that tip. And then just one quick follow-up question on that. So when you're crowdsourcing, do you mention some of those festivals you intend to submit to? Or do you, because you said to do this all in pre-production, mm-hmm. to have a very strong idea of where you're going to submit to. Do you mention that in crowdsourcing? Or is it just like, this is what this is going to be about. This is who I am. I, I wouldn't yeah. in terms of, you you saying we intend to go to these festivals but you might be able to you know come from a different angle and say films like this have gone to x That's y and z and that is something that in persuasive writing is where you're basically borrowing that credibility so right. you're you're using other examples to sort of say i've done my market research i know what i'm talking about and this is how i could see this running right i love that do you ever Hmm. Let's say you pick a festival that's like a bigger one. Let's say you look at Tribeca Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Do you ever kind of think about what kind of films do they normally pick? Does that factor into how you decide you're going to maybe film the the film? Does that make sense? I think that it really helps to understand what festivals are programming and what different festivals are programming and what slots they have available. So I think Tribeca has like a a midnight madness, you know, that Mm. might be good 
for a, a you know like psychological kind of, thriller yeah, psychological thriller right but right. they're not probably not going to program my psychological thriller at 7 p.m in the drama slot there are only so many um time there, there's only so much time they have to program uh, and i have something i want to say about that but i want to answer your initial question which is I think really doing your research on if you want to be at a specific festival, first ask yourself why, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time we just get caught up in the name and we really want to know, like, actually, why do you want to be there? What what do you think is the best, is the reason that you're called to it rather than thinking about, you know, I think a lot of us come from and forgiven if you do, because we've all been there, but it, it can be this ego thing or like worries status right or like sundance sounds like it would be a great opportunity Mm -hmm. for me Mm -hmm. like exactly and so doing your research on you know what is it that about that festival that really works for you and and your career trajectory understanding what your um, goals are as a filmmaker and especially in this project is very helpful we do a lot of that in my course because i think we just want to jump quickly to making the project and i think spending a little bit of that time just a little bit of time yeah. Deciding on, you know, what the big picture is here and how this project fits into it and how it's going to help you step towards it. That helps you make more informed choices. Watching films that got into those festivals and figuring out, is this film, you know, is my idea going to be right for that festival? If you really just want to be at a particular festival, do that market research, go and watch all of those films. Um, but I would encourage you, instead of going down that road to try and mimic what has worked before, just follow your curiosity and don't worry if your voice is a little bit different than everyone else's. It's good if it is. And it's good if they don't understand it right away. A lot of festivals say like the programmers will, you know, they'll watch something that's a little bit unique and know that, you know, it's not right for this year. It's not right for our festival, but they're going to pay, they're going to stay and paying attention to you. This very much goes backwards to the, you know, the thing we said earlier, just make great work that follows your curiosity, show up authentically, use that voice of yours and allow people to see you for who you are rather than mimicking what has worked before, because that certainly will not work. Excellent. And how long are your short films usually out of curiosity? I'm so glad you asked because that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> I feel like you were- Oh, good. You, I felt it. You read my mind. I felt it. Question. I love it. No, I'm so, you, you truly read my mind. So yes. it's very much up to you with how you want your film to go. I do have- general guidance for you, especially as a first, second, third, you know, time filmmaker and you're sort of getting your footing. And this is also what I've heard from programmers too. They're more likely to program your film if it can fit in the slot within, you know, the time limit Mm. they have available. If you're a new filmmaker and they have 90 minutes and you have submitted a 20 minute film, it is much harder for them to be able to find that program. Even if the film has to be excellent too, right? That that's the thing. The film has to be excellent. It is so much more expensive to make a 20 minute film excellent, especially, you know, it's, as that first time, first, second, third time filmmaker, then it is for you to make a five or six minute film and have that stand out and then them be able to program it. They can program so many more films. So you're more likely to get programmed. First of all, it's going to cost you thousands and thousands of dollars less to make six minute film than a 20 minute film. You're also going to be able to be more programmable. So I would, you know, they're more likely to program a 20 minute film from a filmmaker that they've got a relationship with that they know about that the film has traction or the the artists have traction somehow and the goal is to build you towards that but i think everyone 
that wants to make something that hasn't done it before, keep it really short, keep it simple, and just execute well. Execute differently, but keep it short and sweet. Seafoam is six minutes, but it was yes, also six minutes. the shortest. I wow. think that's the shortest film I've made. I just had written it one afternoon and was like, let's shoot this. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad it's short. I think short, I like short films. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. I think, and I think exactly what you just said, the, the importance of having a short film, especially if you want to go the festival circuit, it's so much easier to fit a six minute thing in there. Yes. And then, um, I know one of your films, Philomena, had a broadcast on ABC. Mm-hmm. And was that just like the right person in the audience at the right time? Or how did that come about? So Phenomena was the first film I had made out of film school. And it got into Australia's largest short film festival, Tropfest, which Amazing. was the goal of the project. Like, that's the reason I made the film. I was like, all I was very tunnel visioned. Also, I didn't have a lot of awareness of how the, the film industry in terms of festivals worked. So I had Fair. like tunnel vision with one festival, which you should not do. It worked. Do, do, don't do what I did. <laughs> Because the the point really is to get you those laurels, to get you out there, to to get that film circulating. Yeah. And I was just like, I just want this one festival. But, <laughs> um, and honestly, when I when I say all of this stuff in terms of guidance, it's because I've done the opposite and made errors along the way and figured out, oh, oh, this is how the industry works. I understand now. But early on, I was just like falling on my face going, all right, we'll just we'll go again and see what happens. So the film got into Tropfest. They had an agreement with YouTube. They also had an agreement with ABC. So the film was actually live streamed. Um, got it. And that's how it happened. And I didn't even know Amazing. that until very close to when the festival was happening. I was also, the adjudicators were like Luke Davies and Susan Sarandon and Rachel Griffiths. And they were all like there judging the 15 or 16 films that got in that were playing to tens of thousands of people in a live audience. And I was standing on the stage. They were, they told me that they wanted, they only told me an hour before that this all happened, that I was going to go not only was my film going to be live streamed on ABC, but they were going to stream it live to the audience and then cameras would go immediately up after the credits rolled and they would go straight to a live interview with me on ABC. Oh, I was not prepared Come at on. all. And the film is pretty dark. It's another psychological thriller. And it's about a woman who sees another version of herself and she's not, you know, we're not sure what has caused this sort of fracturing and it's a little bit of psychosis and you find out right at the very end. And it is pretty, she's gone through something really traumatic that you only understand right at the end of the film. And I felt the whole like 60,000 people live in this outdoor arena audience situation all go when the second that, that, that final moment hit everyone in the audience went, Oh, And then right to you. And then they were like, camera's out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was it was incredible, though. I mean. Yeah. One of the most imprinted memories of my life, but also so terrifying to be like, Izzy, how are you? Tell us about that last yeah. moment there where everyone went, ooh. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, I mean, it honestly sounds so fun. And I do want to give a couple minutes just to your awesome podcast, which we've obviously already talked a little bit about. But can you tell us a little bit about Indie Spunk and the the genesis of it, why you created this podcast, and what people should expect if they tune in? The Indie Spunk podcast is 
Thank you for asking. I'm so excited about it. We have been live for, I think, five weeks now, and it's so exciting. I can totally understand why you absolutely love having a podcast. Love it. It's basically an extension of what I do in my coaching and membership programs, which is all about bringing community together and helping people go from idea to script to screen and beyond and build those careers. And so we're bringing in industry guests. So we have people come in that talk about their experience in the industry, that break down the steps. And also, you know, I have solo episodes where I'm talking about things that we talk a lot about in my program. So, you know, I kind of touched on some festival stuff today and yes. talking about seafoam. And I mentioned one about uh, how and why to start. Yeah. Oh, how, how to, to start, before, to start you're before you're ready. Yes, I love that Loved episode. It. Yeah. I think that was, you know, people have responded well to that one. And there's a lot of great stuff on there. And I'm excited about the growth of it just because, you know, years ago, I, I knew I wanted to do a podcast and just through the process of working with a lot of the wonderful clients that I get to work with, mostly they're mostly women, they're mostly non-binary folks. And most of them started from a place of, I really want to do this. I just don't feel like I can, or I'm allowed, or I have the skills or the confidence or anything, or know the right people to be able to make the film I want to make. And I was having these conversations over and over with these wonderful, talented, cool people thinking we need to get more of these conversations out and accessible so that more people can make the work and know that there are skills available. Like you can absolutely do it and here's how to do it. So that's what the podcast is really aimed at doing. I also feel like I hear a lot of interviews that uh, I don't like hearing, oh, I was really lucky because this thing happened. I always am like, no, no, tell me exactly how that happened. You worked your ass off and, you know, it's not luck. It's something that you did. So let's break it down. Like, what was the email that you sent? Did you follow up? How many times did you follow up? What was that response like? Tell me about the ways that you failed and tried again, because I think that we have this, you know, quick start idea in the industry that if it doesn't happen straight away, then you're a failure. And the truth is that Mm. it takes years and years and years. So I like to get into the nitty gritty with the interviews that I do and really ask what exactly it looked like and how it came about rather than gloss over the the other stuff and just get straight to, you know, the success. I completely agree with that. Hence this podcast. <laughs> yes. So I, I totally get it. Though I do I think that you have a very specific perspective and and point of view that you want to highlight, especially when it comes to indie filmmaking, but also in general. But I do think that it has to do a little bit with luck. I do think that, but I agree with you in that there is so much more that needs to be there in order for you to even get to a place where there's a little bit of luck that helps. For sure. And so you're right. There is, there are the emails. And I mean, I was just one of the, the, uh, the, the person who was on my podcast this week, she's a content creator and she was saying, you know, anyone can do what I do. Anyone can create the content I create. And I was like, you know, to a certain extent, mm-hmm. yes, we can all do this stuff. However, you're the one that's putting in all the mm. work for it. You're the one that's figuring out what's working and what's not working. You're the one that's following up with the people that you need to follow up with, pitching the the right sponsors for it. And you're putting all the work into making sure you have content coming out all the time. And not everyone does do all of that. And yes. so I think that that's something that you and I have in common is that we're curious about 
What are all those things? What are all the things that make you able to do the thing that you're doing so well? Because like you said, I mean, all these things have multiple steps and they, they, they take a lot of ingenuity and innovation and creativity and forward momentum where, yeah, maybe anyone can do it, but not everyone does. Yes, that is so true. And to your point, figuring out what your strengths are and not shaming yourself for the strengths that you don't necessarily mm. have, but instead yeah. building support around you brick by brick that gives you the ability to work in your zone of genius, to work to your strengths and not need to do everything. Because many of my clients are actors who want to make their own work. And in the beginning, I think a few of them are interested in directing, they're interested in producing, they're interested in writing the script. But at the end of the day, what they really want to do is be the star of the film. And right. I always say, like, that is fully possible. There is some legwork to do in the beginning yeah. to build that support around you. But if you want to be the star of your film and be a producer, but not the only producer, great. And I've just, one of my clients, actually, she, I worked with her all of last year. She's, her film is completed. It just got into a festival and two nights ago, it won the best film at the festival. And she, she exact, exactly this situation had written it herself. We workshopped it in the, in the program. We helped build her the whole team and crowdfund and raise the money, got a whole bunch of traction, got her some press, built that team around her. And all she, she produced the film, but with two other people, didn't direct it. And now she's kind of getting exactly the recognition she wants as an actor and has this credit and has these awards. It's like, you can absolutely do it, but you have to want to do the work. And that is something that maybe not everyone wants to do. And I think that is, that's fair to say that if you don't want to do it, okay, that's fine. Pick what you do want to yeah. do. But if you just want to act or if you want to direct and act, like all of these things are possible. So don't let what you think is only possible limit you. Anything is possible. It's just about figuring out how you want to operate your career. Excellent. Oh, so well said, Izzy. And I just I think it's such a mark of a good coach or teacher to say exactly the way you just said it, which is everyone has their zone of genius. And it's important that you identify your strengths and then find people to support the things that you're not as great at. Um, and instead, not like shame yourself about the things that I love the way you said that. And I do think it's a mark of a good coach or teacher. So I will include in the show notes, uh, a link to your podcast, a link to your website, a link to your work. Thank you so much for coming on Mentors on the Mic. It's been so fun talking to you. And I'm just, uh, I'm so happy I even, I, I have the podcast to look at. And um, I have a couple of recommendations for people for you to maybe interview okay. if you want. Oh, I would but, love um, that. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. Michelle, you are so wonderful. I have followed your podcast for years. I think you are just doing all of this amazing work. I love that you also work in communications and it's something that I'm really passionate about as well. So I've seen you as a mentor as well. And I think that, you know, I'm just such a champion for you. So anything I can do to support you, thank you so much for having me on the podcast and for doing all of the work that you do. I think you're such a badass. Thank you. You too. Right back at you, Izzy. <laughs> right back at you. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend in entertainment you know would love it.
Let me know what you've learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at mentors on the mic. I love reading your messages. Uh, you can also find me at, at Michelle Simone Miller on Instagram. On both accounts, I'll be sharing even more information about our mentors. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. It makes it easier for people to find our podcast, and I love reading your reviews. So thank you so much, and I'll see you next week. 